Friends, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. As we began this series in the letters of Peter just a couple weeks ago, we were looking at uh, who Peter was, the Apostle Peter, the leader of the apostolic band, the fishermen from Galilee, and those that he wrote to, Christians scattered, dispersed through five Roman provinces that are gathered on the northern uh, coast of modern-day Turkey, that great peninsula between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And these people, Peter calls them strangers, exiles, pilgrims, sojourners. The words he uses indicates to us that as Christians, we are in the world but not of the world. Our citizenship as followers of Christ is in heaven. As Hebrews chapter 11 says, we look forward to a better city, a city whose foundations were not laid by man, the city of God. And on our way as pilgrim and pilgrims progress from the city of destruction to the celestial city, we journey through a lost and hurting world. But not not only afraid, not in darkness, not only suffering pain and loss. We go through this dark world as light. It's our mission, our job to shine God's light, His grace, His love in all the dark corners that cross our paths. We have the ministry of reconciliation. We have the good news of the gospel. We have hope to offer we have peace in anxious times. You have, as a follower of Jesus, what the world needs. We have the life that this world is dying for. We have the solution to the sin problem that plagues mankind as we have the risen Lord dwelling in our hearts. So though we are sojourners, exiles, strangers and foreigners, we have such an important role to play. Jesus used the metaphor of salt and light. You're here to season and preserve. You're here to bring light and life to this world. What a wonderful thing it is. And yet, Peter begins one of his great themes in this passage, that because we are, in a sense, so different now that we know Jesus, so different from the world that we were born in, Spiritually, we were lost. We were separated from God. The book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, you were an enemy of God by your attitudes and actions. While we were yet God's enemies, Christ died for us. No longer are we God's enemies. You've been adopted through faith in Jesus into the very family of God. You are His child and He loves you. But one of the things we experience in this world that we're so different from now is that we experience testing and trials. Trials and tribulations. Tribulations are those things that come into your life and others, either spiritual beings like Satan or individual people, mean them for your harm. Tribulations are like persecutions. But trials, that's the Greek word that means testing. As the kids are undergoing tests this week, examinations for junior and senior high students, 
Their teachers don't mean it for their harm. The kids may feel that way sometime, but the teachers say these tests have a good purpose. They help you know where you stand, that you're growing, that you're learning, that you're progressing. And friends, in today's passage, we see that your heavenly Father loves you no less, that He allows testing into our lives to grow us. It's a familiar theme in Scripture. Studying for the message this week, I found it in God's Word again and again and again, Old and New Testament, that God tests His people as precious metals are refined. So I've called today's message, Refiner's Fire, because Scripture mentions it here in passing, and other passages specifically apply it, Old and New Testament, to God's people that like silver and gold are heated and melted to skim off the impurities, to purify them and to improve them and to prove them genuine, we too are tested in the fires of adversity and loss and grief. And God uses them for our benefit. It's hard to understand sometime, and it's difficult when you're going through it. It's often only in retrospect, looking back, that you can see that God's loving hand was at work, that His strong hand of love was moving in your life, that when you felt all alone, He was never near to you. Refiner's fire. First, as we come to 1 Peter chapter 1, we see Peter talks about tests. And he uses the picture that they are necessary. They have to happen. I've called this a painful necessity. Into every life some rain must fall. It has to. It's like nature. We need the rain as well as the sun or there would be no life. And for God's children to grow and become who we're meant to be, to become more and more like Jesus, we have to go through the same struggles, trials that we saw Jesus went through. He is our pioneer. The book of Hebrews says that he is the author and perfecter. That can equally be translated as the pioneer, the front runner of our faith. He marked out the course of a life of faith that we're to follow. Oh, he went through many trials. And the testing of his faith every time he went through trusting his heavenly father. He wanted to live a life of faith to show you what a life of faith looks like. Oftentimes we see Jesus say, well, yeah, that's easy for Jesus. He's the son of God. (laughs) But Jesus never did his works, his miraculous signs. He didn't live his life in the power of his glory as the second person of the Godhead. Philippians says he emptied himself and became like you, a human. And he lived his life by faith. Jesus says, you see what I do? One day you can do even more. As the body of Christ, we can reach more people with the good news of the gospel than even our Lord did in his earthly sojourn. This is his plan for us. Part of that plan is to grow up and mature and become stronger And that requires painful necessities. A person who never is tested never grows. I've seen Adrian Rogers quoted, but it goes far beyond him. 
older than Adrian Rogers, I read Warren Wiersbe once said that an untested faith is an untrusted faith. <laughs> you don't depend on that because that faith has never been tested. Painful necessity. Friends, all of life has painful necessities. The kids are going through their exams now. And I remember examination time. Oh, sleepless nights preparing, praying that God would perform a miracle and put something in my brain that I didn't work hard enough to get there in the first place. Lord, give me miraculous knowledge. That was a prayer he answered. He said no. But (laughs) painful necessities. Has anybody ever been to the dentist? We need dentists. Thank God for dentists. Could you imagine living before dentists? People's lives were debilitated. Their quality of life was awful because of the constant pain and infection in their teeth. Going to the dentist can be painful. Mm -mm -mm. I won't even get into the sound of the dentist or the burning smell of the dentist or the sharp pain before the horrible numbness sets. No, I won't even... I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting off track. Dentists are a painful necessity. Maybe doctors are too. Oftentimes the doctor's not painful at all, but sometimes, as we've heard in the lives of many of our church family, they need surgical intervention, cutting, wounding. A doctor to heal you wounds you. It's a painful necessity. Ask any elite athlete. Do you ever encounter pain to get better? And they look at you like you're crazy. Of course we do. That's the only way to reach peak performance. They're the ones who coined the phrase, no pain, no gain. Painful necessity. We accept it in every area of our physical lives. But often we, we balk at the f- spiritual aspects of it. We say, oh, it shouldn't be that way. If God loved me, he wouldn't allow that. We see that principle in every area and your Father loves you more than anyone else. Peter says an amazing thing in 1 Peter 1, verse 6. He's speaking of salvation, our salvation. So he says in this, at the beginning of the verse, he's speaking of in your salvation. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter recognizes the people he's writing to have suffered. This is the point where the first large-scale persecutions were just beginning. Very likely, Peter wrote his letters as he's in Rome. He's facing his own imminent execution that hangs over him. He's going to die on a cross. And very likely the Apostle Paul, who's been in Rome before him, has already, under Nero, has already been executed. A more humane execution because unlike Peter, Paul is a Roman citizen. He could not be crucified. So they beheaded him. And Peter is writing to people as they've seen Christians along with Jews already at one point under Claudius, Nero's father, were already banished from Rome for a time. And Nero is blaming Christians for the great fire of Rome that he very likely started to make room for his new palace. Christians were easy scapegoats. And all throughout the Roman Empire, they became targets. Whatever bothered people, whenever they needed someone to blame, 
they started to blame Christians. And so Peter's writing to people, not only are we different and we have different priorities and a different direction and a different Lord and a different citizenship in this world, but now we're being targeted because of that. We're here to love the world, but the world doesn't love us back. As Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. But if some listen to me, some will listen to you as well. Our Lord encouraged us in that. Well, Peter says in that passage, he says, these things had to come. He uses a Greek word that says they were necessary, though at this time you have suffered some things for a season. And he says a number of things about our trials. He says they have a duration. God has a plan for you. Trials come into your life and for a season you suffer them and God brings you through them. There is always with the Lord that light at the end of the tunnel. And He'll be with you every step of the way. And He says there that they have to happen. A little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. All kinds. We translate that as two words. Later in the book of 1 Peter, that word is used again. The same word, but it's used of God's grace that comes in all shapes and sizes. God gives you as a Christian a gift to use and apply God's grace to the lives of others. And it will look like this with one and this with the other. The Greek word literally means multifaceted, multi-hued, multicolored. Well, God's grace and gifts come in so many varieties and beautiful colors. But here Peter uses the same word to say that trials come in all shapes and sizes too. They come in all different colors, but it's a different palette altogether. (laughs) How many of you have ever had a blue Monday that lasted for years? A gray day, a dark time, a difficult time. We experience this loss of employment, the loss of a spouse, loved ones. We experience grief, and loss like anyone else. And yet scripture says we don't mourn as those who have no hope. All that we go through is colored by hope and faith. We go through these necessary trials. Therefore our good. One of the best examples in scripture of this is found in 2 Corinthians. Is the apostle Paul reflects on the fact that he has a thorn in the flesh. That phrase obviously indicates a physical ailment. Many people think of because of some other hints in Scripture, it might have been something that afflicted his eyes. Interestingly, as he came to faith, as you remember on the road to Damascus, he was blinded. And later as he was baptized, scales fell off his eyes. And then it seems that he was caught up to heaven, very likely when he was stoned, possibly to death. And then God raised him back up to continue But because of the glory of that, God didn't want him to be puffed up or focus on it too much. And so to keep him grounded, the Apostle Paul, to keep him grounded, God allowed him to have physical, ongoing suffering. God allowed him to pray for healing and said, no, the suffering you're going through plays an important purpose. That trial was necessary painful necessity. In 2 Corinthians, reflecting on that, a powerful passage, the Apostle Paul says, 
to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul accepted it. He learned the lesson of it. It was a painful necessity in his weakness. He needed to depend on God more and more day by day. Physically, he became weak and he suffered. Spiritually, he grew and became more like Jesus, became stronger. And friends, that's what God wants for us as well when he allows those painful necessities to come into our life. Necessary pain because he loves us. One of the things that we see when people go through this, the beauty of their faith touches our hearts and inspires us. And we grow as well. We see in the next passage that enduring faith, it glorifies Jesus. Enduring faith glorifies our Lord. It reflects on Him. You praise God when you see His children endure because you know it's God in them. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Continuing in verse 7, Reflecting on the trials that we encounter, Peter writes, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. (laughs) That's what I want. When I encounter those trials, when I suffer, I want to I want it to glorify God. I want to live in such a way that Christ is glorified. I don't want to throw up my hands and quit. I want to keep going because I have hope. That's what we want for ourselves. That's what we want. We want Christ to be glorified, not ourselves. We want Him to be glorified. And God's people have always gone through these difficult times. One of the amazing passages, because they praise it, they they use this passage in Psalm 66 for the glory of God. I'm going to begin a little bit earlier, verse 8, than what's on the screen. The psalmist in Psalm 66, reflecting on God's people's experience with the Lord. Praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. (laughs) The faith the people have, the testimony of God's goodness They have because they endured faithfully these trials. It's a wonderful thing. They were refined. They were tested. Their faith, as verse 6 reveals, was shown to be sound, genuine. 
because their faith is in the Lord. We can put our faith in a lot of things, but only when your faith is in God is it rewarded. Does it see you through those difficult times, through fire and water? God brought them through. As we've reflected in the last few weeks, we've seen in Romans 8 that suffering is often linked to glory. Verse 17 of Romans 8, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. We talked about that in relation to our inheritance. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And then he talks about what it means to be a child of God. If indeed we share in his sufferings, the sufferings of Jesus, in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's a theme of Peter. In your salvation, you were born for glory. Remember doxa, the word glory? The glory of God, the glory is the essence that surrounds everything God is and does. You were born for glory. And here we see that you are preserved and shielded and kept for glory as well. Our sufferings, present sufferings, foretell future glory. We are able to glorify God for what He brings us through. Faithful endurance glorifies Jesus. I remember going to the theater. Yes, I went to movies back then. No long, no, I, back in the 80s. Back in the 80s, a movie came out. It was a Hollywood movie, or I think it was made in England. It was a British movie, but we Hollywood. It wasn't a Christian film. But it had such a powerful Christian message. You remember the film, Chariots of Fire. It was about the British Olympic team from 1924, and it followed the story of two men. One man was Jewish, though he wasn't practicing. His last name was Abrams. He was a secular Jew, and though he wasn't strongly practicing, he still experienced all of the rejection and anti-Semitism that was common in England at that time. And it put a chip on his shoulder. And he was going to succeed in track and field just to get one over on everybody else. He hired a coach back then when you trained yourself. And he approached his running scientifically. Abrams, historically, because it's a true story, shared the Olympic team before the Paris Olympics with another individual. Very different. His name was Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell was born in 1902 in China. Why China? Because his mom and dad were missionaries with the China Inland Mission. So he grew up in the mission field, seeing mom and dad share the love of Jesus in that cross-cultural setting. He went home to Scotland to take his education. And while he was there, his natural athletic abilities began to surface. As you see in the picture on the left-hand side of the screen, that's Eric Liddell crossing a finish line because he was uh, an amazing sprinter. But the funny thing about him, unlike Abrams, who, who ran more like a modern sprinter with his hands a certain way and his head down, leaning forward, Eric Liddell just ran with it, almost with his eyes closed and his head thrown back and his mouth wide open and his arms flailing. And he said he ran and he felt the joy of God when he ran. He was a strong Christian. 
One of the things that he felt very strongly about is that, is that we should keep the Lord's Day holy. And he found that his athletic pursuits were all about his own glory. And so he would refrain from them on Sundays. Well, as you could see in the movie Revealed, that got him into trouble in the 1924 Olympics because the heats, the multiple heats leading up to the final of his event that he was tagged to be the gold medalist, he was a shoe-in. The heats were on Sunday. And to the heartbreak of his team, and I'm sure himself, he took a stand. He said, I have to stand up for God's truth I won't run on a Sunday. And not running in the heats, he was disqualified and couldn't enter into the final itself. Well, it continues, the meet, and they found that there were a set of heats that took place during weekdays. It was a longer distance, not the 100-meter dash. It was the 400-meter, one of the, the middle distances for sprinters. It wasn't his best event, but he entered into that. You've seen the movie, you know what happened. He set a world record. 47.6 seconds, world record at the time. And won the gold medal. The rest of that year, he won heats all over Europe. And he became a star of the Scottish rugby team. He was an incredible athlete. But one year after the 1924 Olympics, he said goodbye to his athletic career. At the height, he was only 24 years old. And he went to China to follow in his parents' footsteps as a missionary with China Inland Mission. Oh, as he was there, he would occasionally run in, in uh, exhibitions. He would run against the Chinese or even the Japanese Olympic people as they prepared for later Olympics. He never lost a race. He would take off his suit and put on his old running shoes and run sometimes in shirt sleeves and still beat these Olympic athletes right through his 30s. Well, you know what happened in that part of the world. Before it happened, though, God blessed him to meet a Canadian girl named Florence. And he wed her. And they had two little girls. And in 1939, they were expecting their third. She was born a daughter as well. But the Japanese invaders in China... Prior to the Second World War, the, Chinese, the Japanese invasion of China became more and more serious. And the mission stations were falling to the Japanese military. And Eric Liddell sent Florence and their daughters home to Canada to keep them safe. But he wouldn't leave those who depended on him. And in 1939, he was captured by the Japanese military and he was thrown into prison. He was in the Wainxian prison camp. Camp picture is located there. It was an old, it was an old mission station that was enlarged and it had hundreds and hundreds of people crammed in. No running water, no sanitation, hardly any food. Japanese always treated prisoners very poorly because they thought if you were ever surrendered that you were beneath contempt. And the people were always on the verge of starvation. And Eric Liddell pastored and cared for them because there were so many children in that camp and that was a particular love of his. There's a picture of him with the children of the camp in that top picture. They all knew him and loved him. He was their school teacher. He was their pastor. He was their coach and referee of all their games. In fact, 
he would referee all the games. Sports was the only way to keep the children occupied in that prisoner of war camp. It kept them going. They all loved Uncle Eric, they called him. And he said, I will only referee the sports six days a week. Sundays for church. (laughs) He saw the kids still needed sports, but they would go out. He refused to referee. And he saw them on the sports field there in the compound. And it always ended up in fist fights. And he said, he said, Lord, when it was for my glory, I would rest on Sunday. But this is to show your grace. And so he set aside that. He wasn't a legalist. And so he refereed and led the games on Sunday as well. The winters were particularly harsh. He had no bedding because he had torn up all of his sheets, broken apart his bed to use as supplies to repair the sporting equipment of the people. He was languishing and suffering physically far beyond what many did because he would give almost all of his food rations to the children. They loved him so. Half a year before that camp was liberated by American paratroopers, cold, cold day, February 21st, Eric Liddell died. They believe he died from a brain tumor. They don't know if prison camp hastened his death or if it even caused his neurological problems. But when news leaked back to Europe, Scotland, all of Scotland went into mourning. The flying Scotsman had died. And it seemed so senseless, so senseless. He never met his youngest daughter. But after the war, the stories of his courage, his grace, his love, his example, it spread. And to this day, the Eric Liddell name is on many missions organizations. And his enduring faith has had much greater impact than his brief athletic career. One of the survivors of the camp said, not only did he teach us the Bible, our school lessons, and sports, but he taught us faith. One of the survivors called him Jesus in running shoes. That's what he was like. And he loved to sing, and he taught the children his favorite hymn. One verse of the hymn says, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, the best, thy heavenly friend through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. And he certainly did. Enduring faith glorifies Christ. Finally, Peter says, in this world where trials come, where you're a stranger and sojourner, you need to live out your salvation. To live it out. And we live, and living our salvation takes a number of forms. Peter says in one of the most beautiful passages here, beginning in verse 8, Peter continues, Though you have not seen Him, speaking of your relationship with Jesus, Peter knew Jesus face to face and loved Him. And he knew the people he wrote to, very few of them, if any, 
had ever seen Jesus during his public ministry. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says you're living your salvation. Oh, we will experience it fully at the return of Christ. Glorified bodies, serving the Lord in heaven forever. But even now, you can have a taste and a glimpse of that glory of heaven as you live out your salvation. In that passage, we see Peter speaks of you experience love, the love of God. There is faith. Though you haven't seen Him, you believe in Him. There's an expressible joy that comes from knowing God's love. It's an incredible thing. God does so much for us. Suffering does not mean that God doesn't love you. In fact, as Eric Liddell and others would say, they experienced the love of God more through hard times than they did on sunny days. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, we read, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. In suffering, God gives you His love as well to see you through. The Holy Spirit, He pours it out in your hearts as you live out your salvation in the here and now. Peter says, as you live in this world, your greatest resource spiritually is your bible the word of god in a parenthetical statement we finish with that today peter looks at the word of god and says this about it how incredible it is what a resource what a gift it is for us to have in our hands today peter says concerning this salvation like where did we get this idea where does the good news come from it's found in god's word Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. We're told that the word of God came to us through the Holy Spirit, revealed through the prophets. It's God-breathed. It's perfect and inerrant for us. It's the good news, Old and New Testament. You will see Jesus, God's plan in the Old as well as the New Testament. The prophets saw the shadows of the cross that was coming and the glories that were to follow. They didn't know when it would happen, but God set their hearts at ease that one day there would be a people that would see this come to pass and they would know fully the grace of God in the good news of the gospel. Peter says, those people are you. Your Bible 
is the treasure store of God's love. It's his love letter to mankind. It is his plan of salvation. It is the only way to God revealed in the living word of God. One thing scripture does, it'll grow your faith. I sometimes talk to people. They say, well, I'm spiritual. Are you a believer? Yeah, I think I'm a Christian. What? Tell me about your faith. Well, you know, I just believe there's a God, and you know. And I say, well, explain your faith deeper. And there's not much below the surface. And the reason is, we're largely illiterate or ignorant of the Word of God. Faith is believing the Word of God. Though you have not seen Him, you believe in Him. You believe what God has revealed by His Spirit through the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing. That's brought out clearly in Romans chapter 10, verse 16 and following. Paul writing about the Israelites who heard from God through his prophets. They heard the Word of God, but they didn't always respond. Paul says, But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, Faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. It's the word of Christ, the word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. This is what we believe, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We believe God's word. You spend time in God's word, your faith will grow. It's food, it's water, your heart and your soul you need it every day don't starve your heart and soul don't shrink your faith don't let it become weak and enfeebled feed on the rich food of god's word second timothy says it grows us it builds us equip us if trials are necessary god's word is necessary as well Before on the screen, the verse earlier, Paul reflecting in his letter to Timothy, how Timothy has known God's word because it was in his family before. Paul says, I know how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures and are able to, that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In living out our salvation, our touchstone has to be the Word of God. I like something Charles Spurgeon once said. He saw somebody's Bible and it was tattered. Instead of looking down their nose at them because their Bible was tattered and the pages were so well worn, Spurgeon said this, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. (laughs) Think about that. I'm not saying I'm going to go around and check your Bibles, but a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. You were saved for God's glory, born in the glory of God. God's Spirit keeps you through the trials of life. You're kept and sealed for eternity for the glory of God. The trials that we experience, they prepare us 
for eternal glory. This present suffering is not worthy to compare with the glory that is to come. But you know, in this process, we can experience the glory of God here and now as we trust Him, rely on Him, and see His hand at work around us. Spurgeon also said once, I don't want to get too quotable on Charles Spurgeon. He once said, and it's not on the screen, he once said, a little faith will get you to heaven if it's in the right person. But great faith brings heaven down and fills your heart. <laughs> May our hearts be filled with heaven and God's glory as we keep our eyes set on Him, feed on His Word, and trust Him to bring us through the trials of life that prepare us. As the worship team joins me on the platform, as we prepare to sing our closing song as a prayer, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at the people of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, as we look at men and women of faith in our own lives and in church history, Lord, we're struck by the fact that as we see their faith, we don't seek to glorify them, but we give glory to the one who lived in them and through them and brought them through every trial and gave them endurance and inexpressible joy despite the fact that they were strangers, foreigners, sojourners in this world. Lord, may we be found faithful as we grow our faith in the trials of life, being deeply rooted in the Word of God. Lord, test us, cleanse us, purify us. May the trials of life never be wasted on us. This is our prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.